Good afternoon, this is Gary Kavanagh here on TRSI, your daily dose of good news and grace in a world going ever so slowly mad. I'm here today with my friend and colleague, Michael Dwyer. Michael? Yeah, it's not daily and the world is going mad very quickly, but other than that I join in and associate myself with your comments. You're right, we don't go out daily. It just feels like it. <laughs> yeah, I'm sure just to everybody. Yeah, it just, you know, well, you're our motto, accuracy in everything. Was that our motto? Yeah, well, it'll do. To be honest, I thought, yeah, well, it'll do was our motto. That's a great motto. Yeah. Yeah, well, it'll do. Although I do believe my favourite uh, line about the show so far came from a comment we got from someone, which was, uh, I believe the comment was, it's like Waldorf and Statler from The Muppets, but racist. I remember that one. That was a good one. Like I think I I have some of that in the promotional material. Yeah, yeah. I don't bother to send out. That's. Uh... So we have little things to talk about today. Many little things. Yes, like a little a little bag of jelly tots, little little coloured stories. But before that, I short aside about a little project that the Edmund Burke Institute will be launching shortly called Respect Vapors. It's a grassroots consumer uh, organization looking to bring together vapors from all over the country and help them uh, put their voice to politicians and basically we've been hearing a lot about raising taxes on um, vaping banning flavors basically treating vaping as if it was smoking and it's very clear they're not listening to what actual vapors are saying so we're trying to uh, help build up a group that can kind of present a more unified advice for vapors. So if any of you guys vape and have used vaping to quit smoking or are using it to quit smoking, uh, we're looking for people to send photos and testimonials to a um, email I'll give out now, basically saying uh, how you did it and how you found it and why vaping is important to you. Now, the, we'll be launching a website in a couple of weeks and we'll be using those testimonials on it or for other marketing purposes. But if you do send us a testimonial, a, a video, or sorry, a photo and a um, couple of lines, we'll enter everyone who sends in one of those things, uh, one of those testimonials, into a draw for a hundred euro one for all voucher. Everyone apart from you, Michael, you don't get one. Ah, not fair. Discrimination. No, there's a clear conflict of interest here. I should care? No, you shouldn't care. I don't really care. But, you know, we've got to make this thing seem on the level. Why? Nobody believes it is. These people are cynical, deeply, deeply cynical people. Or else they're, they wouldn't be here. All I've got is an image of a, a long-time listener with a child, and the child telling that listener that the child loves them, and the listener looking down and saying, oh, do you really? That's just what your sort says. <laughs> It'll be the, like, the likes of you. Yes, well, so, okay, so there'll be a hundred, hundred... Hundred euro, one for all uh, voucher, just as a thank you for uh, sending in the testimonials, and also the first few are the hardest to get. So this just lubricates the wheels of process. Yes. Progress, even. So the if you're interested in that, the email you can send it to is info at respectvapors.ie. That's info at respectvapors.ie. And if you're not, well, you just wasted four minutes of your life. And we'll never give them back to you. Never. We have them now. We'll never give them back. We get stronger. Yes. We live off your tears and your fears and your pain. They only make us better and darker. Again, you're failing to be comic relief. Uh, I, I, I'm 
Am I channeling the Emperor here? Or, yeah, the Emperor, yeah. Anyway, so let's start off with some good news. We were talking on the last show about how Amy County Barrett will be put forward for a vote for the American Supreme Court on Monday, Hillary Clinton's birthday. She has unanimously been passed by the committee that was uh, that had to review her before passing her on to the final vote stage. I mean, some people might say it wasn't a unanimous vote, given that every single Democrat refused to cast any vote, boycotted it, and just left posters on their seats. But what I say is, if no one votes against it, it's unanimous in my book. Well, it's unanimous in everybody's book. That's what unanimous means. It means all the votes that were cast were cast in, in one direction and no votes were cast against it. This is not complicated. It was unanimous. The, the Democrats made choices. That's the choice they are allowed to make. But when it goes into the results book, that some student will be looking up in 50 years' time to do their master's dissertation, it will be a unanimous decision out of committee. I did. It was announced by the Republicans as a unanimous decision, which immediately pissed people off which I would gather is exactly what Lindsey Graham wanted to do. I'm quite right. There will be also the final debate between the uh, between Donald Trump and Joe Biden. Mm-hmm. Uh, we are actually recording this. We record these very early in the morning, so the debate actually hasn't happened yet. But by the time you guys hear this, the debate uh, will have already happened. So are there any wild predictions that you would like to throw out, Michael, which I can artfully and gracefully delete if they're hilariously wrong before this hits broadcast? I still think we should have done what I suggested, which was recorded on the basis that we'd actually seen the thing. Yes, no, as I as I said, it would have gone like the day-to-day 9-11 sketch. Yeah, but that would assume that people would listen to us and have all the people who are listening to us would also have listened to the debate and actually have paid attention both to debate and to us. And I think you're now talking about a subset of around two people in the world. And it would have been something to talk about. Okay, I'm going to predict that uh, Joe Biden will smile and look sad a lot. Uh, that Donald Trump will look a little bit like those fish that the Japanese like to eat that sometimes can kill you. I'm going to make a, uh, I'll make a prediction that uh, Donald Trump tells Joe Biden his son is a pedophile. Oh, yeah, that, that, could, that could be... Non-zero percent chance. That's, that's, a, that's not a bad call, actually, because pedophile is one of those words that people will remember. If they remember nothing else, they'll remember the next day. Didn't he say that Biden? Did he say Biden was a pedophile? No, it wasn't Biden. He said his son. Oh, his son's a pedophile. Was oh wow? I think that could cause churn. I could. Uh, this would be on the basis that on the computer, which was allegedly recovered, and the data that were allegedly recovered from the alleged computer, there were allegedly, allegedly images of minors who were allegedly minors, and were allegedly minors, allegedly members of somebody's family, allegedly. Yeah, so for those who haven't heard, Joe Biden's son's Hunter is, so this is all contested. Um, There are some people who say there's absolutely nothing to this story. It's an obvious plant by the Republicans. Other people saying, no, this is just what happens when you've got a massive crack addiction. So what what is alleged is that Hunter Biden gave in a laptop to a repair shop and never picked it up. And that 
eventually that then became the property of the laptop owner. Yes. Of the computer owner. And he went through it and he read some of the documents on it. And the documents on it showed emails and communications between Hunter Biden, who is Joe Biden's only living son, and various other entities, particularly the Ukrainian uh, Ukrainian business people. With connections to business in China. Yeah, and there was also some link to uh, businesses in China. Now, some of those communications seem to tie Joe Biden to it, in that Joe Biden was involved with it, or Hunter Biden was setting up um, meetings between Joe Biden, who was then the Vice President of America, and Ukrainian business people. Now, that has um, gone in a very weird direction. Earlier today, someone who is mentioned in one of the emails uh, was reported to by Fox News have come out and said that, yes, he was the person in the emails and that the emails do refer to Joe Biden and that he's willing to give his um, electronic devices over to the FBI for scanning. Now, the FBI is looking at the email, but it's it's a bizarre thing because it, it turns out that, I mean, the computer store he dropped the laptop in was nowhere near where he lived. But, and there's a lot of weird stuff about it that you'd look at and go, but why would someone do that? But on the other hand, Hunter Biden has a very public, uh, has had some very public issues with alcohol and drugs. Yes. So. Which you'd have to make you say, you know, well done to those Ukrainian businessmen. For winning, you know, for taking a chance on a young man who's had his problems in the past. And they've looked at him and they've obviously seen, you know, qualities in him, Gary. Abilities, competences, that they're willing to, you know, put their time and their money and their effort into this young man. Uh, and I'm sure you know, nothing to do with his father being vice president or candidate for the presidency. But, you know, it's it's it's... It's this is the kind of story we should be talking more about. Somebody being given a second chance by entrepreneurial business people, but somebody given a leg up. It's very positive, you know. It's a it's a heartwarming story. So the um the Democrats are saying that this is a Russian plot to discredit Joe Biden. Another one. Another one. It looks like the FBI don't uh, think that that's the case, and they are looking into it. Slowly. Slowly. Very, very slowly. Because the the FBI, it is alleged by people of ill will, have decided they think that Joe Biden is the most likely person to win this election. So there isn't a great deal in it for them to be seen to be vigorously prosecuting something which might in the end up be bad for Joe Biden's son, if not actually Joe Biden. So that the whole process has been going. Now, it has been alleged that this is all a fiction and it's been that people have been hacking Hunter Biden's emails and all sorts of which is exactly this, what was said I, in one of the many, many controversies in four, four, four odd years ago when people said people's emails were re- released. Oh, no, I was hacked. And then it turned out they weren't hacked at all and it was all perfectly true and real. It may indeed, it may turn out it's, it's a fiction or it may turn out that there's nothing but biblical truth here. Question is: yeah, I, Is it will it get out enough? Will enough people believe it? Two weeks, around not even two weeks to go. The the emails them the the hard drive themselves and whether or not it's true or not is is one thing, and I think it's it's perfectly fine 
to have skepticism about that because as far as I know, no one has actually, no independent source has been able to verify any of the metadata or anything like that on the hard drive to ensure they are correct. It's just the FBI who's seen it and uh, it also very clearly came from the Trump camp well, the, because the FBI should, Giuliani was involved. Yeah, Giuliani was involved, but I mean, the, the FBI should normally be considered an independent uh, source in something like this. That's supposed to be their role. They are an, an independent police force. They're not subject to, in this to the to the president or to politicians. So, anyway, I think you have if if the FBI say they are X or Y or Z for the time being, we have to consider that as being a fairly serious, how would I say, endorsement, uh, if nothing else. But what's in it? Uh, lots of lots of lots of dollars being discussed in it. Yeah. So it there's mention of Joe Biden and of Joe Biden getting a cut from what happened. Mm. Now, the whether or not that's true, as I said, is up in the air. Could be absolute horseshit. What is what has been interesting though has been the response of social media and other networks to it. I mean, I heard when the story came out, and I thought it was absolutely nothing. As in, not really... I was aware of it, but I wasn't paying attention to it. And then the New York Post published a piece on it. And then that got taken off Twitter. Twitter actually removed the ability to share the link on Twitter to anyone inside America. It seems to be. Some people say that they could send it inside it, and you appear to have been able to send it inside America. But it looks like there was a control on it spread inside America. Um, and there seemed to be bans from it. Facebook said they were restricting its spread uh, until a... Uh, and that it would be put to their fact checkers. <laughs> so they're applying... It's, it's kind of a lockdown here, isn't it? Yeah, I mean, the New York Post hasn't actually... Their Twitter account hasn't posted anything in a number of days. Um, it looks like what happened is Twitter demanded that they remove one of the tweets about the story. And they refused because we were talking about how Twitter makes you delete it yourself just so you're complicit in it. But now it's kind of embarrassing for Twitter because people are going, so what's going on with the New York Post then? Because it is one of the oldest newspapers in this country, regardless of its quality now. People had said in America, in this country. I, I, I think that, yeah, the slightly funny thing about it was the day before the FBI uh, had their news conference to say what they were going to say. A number of people had made pretty well the same comment. They said tomorrow the FBI is going to make is going to say something. If they come out and they say something about Trump, the following day it will turn out to be the most important news story in the world. If on the other hand they say something about Biden, it'll turn out that it was a damn squib and of a no interest to anybody at all. <laughs> so that's pretty well how it's turned out. Yeah, it was interesting in that other media, for the most part, has not covered it at all. Or if they've covered it, they've covered it in a very particular style. Yeah. I mean, I saw one reporter and he went to Joe Biden and asked Joe Biden if these emails were real and if he had ever met with this Ukrainian businessman. And the Joe Biden campaign came back and said, we've checked his official diary from that period and there's no such meeting on it. And they went, fine, perfect. No meeting took place. <laughs> and you're like, now, 
I'm not an expert in meeting with Ukrainian business people and trying to enrich my family through them, but I feel that that's something you might not put in your office diary. Yeah, unless you had a very good reason to gloss uh, the story that you've been sent over specifically to meet with these Ukrainian businessmen by your boss, if if the purpose was the the gross treatment to yourself and your son. You think it's the kind of it's the kind of meeting you might have on the QT. I saw Politico was reporting on it as well on the the China angle, the story there of Hunter Biden um, assuming these emails are are correct trying to get money and kickbacks for his father. Mm. And uh, Politico said that um Basically, well, there's no evidence that Joe Biden ever received any money. Income from China doesn't appear on his tax returns. Wow. But there you go. (laughs) Yeah. I think the the major issue is that it came from Giuliani. And Giuliani has been spending years trying to get stuff on um, Biden and anyone who will run against Trump. Still, though, I mean, it's not much of a defense, is it? On his tax, on his tax return, he didn't, he didn't say. Oh, and then there was this income which I got from corrupt, corrupt payments from the Chinese government. <laughs> well, you know, that's how they, that's how they get you. Uh, what I did find interesting was NPR's response. Now, for those who don't know, NPR is a national public radio. I think is what yeah, it yeah, for. yeah. And NPR is basically the. Um, it's public broadcasting in America. It's paid for by the American taxpayer. Although they do take some... They're actually quite like RTE. They take private and public funding. And they have telethons. They came out and they said that... They were asked why they weren't reading... Or why they weren't publishing any stories about it. And they said... And this is from their managing uh, editor for news. We don't want to waste our time on stories that are not really stories... And we don't want to waste the listeners and readers' time on stories that are just pure distractions. Which, if Trump manages to win, is going to be a real problem for them. Because they're probably getting defunded. It'll be the former NPR. Yeah, it's, he's, I think a lot of people at this stage are basically biting the bullet and saying that we just have to double down on Biden. Because if Biden doesn't win, we're just screwed anyway. Yeah, so you, um, the, the cordon on this story is actually pretty impressive. So Fox News are covering it, New York Post is covering it, and it's being covered in a couple of other newspapers, but usually only on the fact that on social media this thing seems to be getting freezed out, mm. deliberately so. But the, it hasn't crossed over into the mainstream at all, so I'm interested in what comes out of this in the debate. Yeah, it seems like the, the if there is anything to this story, and that's a big if, if there is something to the story, the way for Trump to explode it is uh, is to bring it up in the debate. They you, they can't ignore it. There's going to be whatever thirty or forty odd million or maybe more Americans watching it. It'll have to be. They'll have to do the reporting. Now they can diss it all they like and dismiss it and just say it was just Trumpism. But he can at least throw it right into the middle of the public discourse and then let people see what they think of it. And then, then the the Washington Times, Washington Post, and the New York Times, and some the 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 LA Times, whatever, will have to actually take some kind of a position on it. 
I mean, it's difficult to tell because I've only seen a couple of reporters ask Joe Biden about this. I did see his campaign spokesperson point out that it was taken off Twitter, and that just shows you how little credibility the story has, which is not really how Twitter works. No, but do you not think, Gary, I mean, this is slightly to the, off the, the point. Uh, there's a big investigation going on, uh, a com- committee in, into the big tech companies, Facebook, Facebook, Twitter, Google and Apple are all being looked for possible antitrust violations and monopolies and things. And I think for, I think most of it is bullshit. And I think it's a misunderstanding what the nature of monopoly is and a misunderstanding of, what the, the, of this market. Having said that, right now it does feel like the willingness uh, of these social media platforms to, if you like, get their hands dirty, to get actively involved in this kind of stuff, in this, in the, in the great, in the culture wars and the political wars, has they seem to have just ramped up. I, I, I mentioned to you earlier. It's not a big story, but it to me it seemed very symptomatic of what we're talking about. There's a fairly prominent American intellectual. The uh, in in the in in the world of YouTubing and podcasting and things called Eric Weinstein. Now I think you you you've come across Eric Weinstein, I'm sure, Gary. And uh, Eric Weinstein became a notorious no no a well known figure because, um, if anybody remembers, I did a uh, an interview with a guy called Benjamin Boyce, who was, which what he was, shall we say written the story, recorded the story of what happened in Evergreen College in Washington, which was one of these explosions of the of radical prog- progressivism within the uh, a third level, uh, at the, in the third level in the United States, where just these incredibly woke students met an incredibly weak administration, which cooperated with them in creating this pretty scary fucked up kind of a place. Now, Brett Weinstein ends up being hounded out because he basically refused to submit to uh, a request which he didn't feel was appropriate. Now, the, the, the reason Weinstein is interesting is because you know other figures in what's called the intellectual dark web because people like, most famously, Jordan Peterson. Now, Peterson can describe himself in many different ways, but I would say that Peterson is definitely a conservative. He uses the word liberal about himself, but I think Peterson is basically a conservative. You got people like Ben Shapiro, you got people like Dave Rubin, you got people like Joe Rogan. Now Rogan doesn't fit obviously into any particular box, but again, I would say it's a kind of libertarian, pot smoking with a little bit of small C conservative thrown in there. Weinstein is very different. I, Weinstein is an eminently reasonable. Ex- always nice, solid, old-fashioned, left-wing Democrat. He's not a centrist, Gary. I mean, Eric Weinstein, Brett Weinstein, he also has a brother, Eric, who works for, is it uh, Peter Thiel? He's an advisor, he works, I think it's Peter Thiel. He's an investment advisor, super, super duper bright mathematician, slightly oddball kind of a character himself. Yeah, Eric uh, Weinstein is a managing director of uh, Teal Capital. And an interesting character, but I think he's at times slightly too foily. 
Brett is this eminently reasonable evolutionary biologist married to, and they are, as I say, Gary, they're not centrists. They're not moderate Democrats. They're old fashioned lefties. And he has been, he has been uh, removed from Facebook. He's been banned. He got the message saying your, your, your account has been, has been, uh, <laughs> excuse me, your account has been stopped. And the, the, it has also, this case has already been reviewed and there, and there is no further appeal. Now, when you got people like Weinstein, who in his own area, academically, really, you know, well credentialed, but also politically, he is really, really reasonable. He's not incendiary. He really works hard not to be incendiary not to use language that could be seen as polemical or hateful in any way, shape or form. But he is a bit of a heretic. He's a heretic on the speech issue. He's a heritage a little bit on maybe race theory, critical race theory, postmodernism, intersectionality, that kind of stuff. When, there's um, when you see stuff like an actual newspaper, the oldest newspapers in the United States, effectively being stop taking off the platform in Twitter. When you have people like Weinstein being taken off, being removed from Facebook, this is not Milo Yiannopoulos. This is a long way from Milo Yiannopoulos. When I had, I was talking to somebody recently who was telling me that they do uh, recordings and videos, podcasts and things for a, a fairly moderate Catholic organization and he told me they have become aware that there were certain words and certain subjects that they had decided basically to avoid because if they came up in any of their recordings it was that they were that they were uh, they, they they wouldn't be able to promote them on YouTube uh, it's all getting a little bit a little bit unpleasant now, maybe it's always been like this and now we're just noticing and we're being naive, but it's it's a little bit queasy at this stage because these groups are, they are important. They are very powerful. Maybe we overestimate their power. I don't know. I don't know. But I think that certainly for people under the age of 30, I think this is how people, most people consume what we call news. So it's uh, on as regards the investigation into the, the media. That's something we perhaps will come back to another time, because I think it's worth looking into. Maybe on Sunday. Yes, there's an endless array of things to talk about on Sunday. So you wanted to talk about the Pope and the gays, Michael? Well, I didn't really. I never really want to talk about the Pope and the gays because you know, God, how much can you say? No, what I tell you. It's a slightly, it's, I'm kind of amused. Have you, I'm sure, like myself, Gary, you have an alert on your phone that tells you every time the Pope says something so you can immediately go and consume it, read it, and then write about it because that's the kind well, of... Well, only, only, you know, when he says magisterial things, clearly <laughs> enough. Oh, well, you see, that's the problem, isn't it, Gary? How can you tell? Yeah, how can you be sure it isn't or is or isn't magisterial? But the present Pope is, and I like to 
for once I got something right. Pretty well after he was elected, I said to a number of my Catholic friends, I said, this fella is going to be a disappointment to everybody. The Liberals think he's one thing, but he's going to be turn out not to be quite what they hoped for. And the Conservatives are going to find him very tricky because if nothing aesthetically, stylistically, he's going to be a problem. So anyway, he's come out and he has talked about civil unions, Gary. And he has apparently endorsed the idea of civil unions for the gay lads, and particularly the gay ladies as well. And all over Twitter has gone all over Twitter. And everybody's all terribly excited. Isn't it wonderful? Isn't it fantastic? Now, the first thing I have to say is, don't you just love the way the Pope is, is a good Pope when he says something that the people agree with? And then suddenly becomes a bad Pope when he turns around and says the wrong thing? Well, I mean, I would complain, but Michael, I feel if the Pope did only things I agree with, I'd have to say he was a good Pope. <laughs> well, you could I think that's just how it works. You could say that, or you could say, well, if he's only doing stuff that I agree with, why am I not Pope? I could be Pope, and I'd do it... Not Catholic? I'd do it cheaper. Not Catholic. That's a, a matter of minutes, Gary. That can be sorted out. I think I think I could be a fine Pope, but I would be a fine Pope in the style of the older uh, Italian Popes. Absolutely. I see you in the style of Julius II, you know, putting your armour on and leading the papal armies into battle against Orvieto or Urbino or taking the castles of Montefalco or something. Yeah, hopefully I last more than, you know, like five years. You know, it was action-packed, though. Action-packed. Yeah, he got a lot done in it. Actually, maybe slightly more than five years. He's not a long-term pope. He did. Lots of lots of nice architecture, too. Anyway, the point about this, insofar as I am in a position to comment, and I am not, prob listen, I'm, a, I'm more of a position to comment than well-paid members of the, the print media in this country who are employed as religious correspondents and seem to be... Oh, let's not personalise it, Michael. Let's take a deep breath and, be, and think charitable and Christian thoughts. Okay. The point is, this is actually nothing new. It's not It's not just... This is something that Francis has previously said in an interview, which maybe wasn't his particular section about didn't go public, but the content of which was fairly well known at the time. And I think, in fact, it's something that he said back when he was Archbishop in Buenos Aires. The thing is, he's endorsing civil unions. What he is not endorsed, Gary, is gay marriage. And you see, the thing is, our liberal friends don't seem to have cottoned on because they don't really see the difference between civil unions and marriage. It is ultimately then just either a contract or a marriage is essentially a wedding. It's just, you know, it's a public declaration of two people's love for the other, celebrating with their loved ones and their family and their friends. And it's just really special and it's great. You know, and I think it's fantastic. Yeah, blah, blah, blah. But that's not what the Catholic Church thinks of as marriage. It's not a wedding. Something rather deeper than that, religiously, spiritually, sacramentally, but also anthropologically and sociologically, they see marriage in a different way. And this is the Pope, Gary, who said that gay marriage was diabolical and when this pope uses the word diabolical or demonic he actually means diabolical or demonic this present pope has quite a strong and publicly 
uh, articulated belief in the in the personal evil that uh, is called Satan or the devil. It's not a kind of a strange amorphous force or something in us which drives us to make the wrong choices. No, it's a, it's a very definite and concrete personal thing, in, a, a force and a reality in the world. But we've all got terribly excited. The thing is, if he's pushed on it, he, he will row back and it will be it will be made clear that this is not about marriage. He's big. He's big on even though he's a Jesuit, Gary. He's big on the old Franciscan thing of love and charity and being nice to people. And I think some of our conservative friends feel that he does that a little bit too much, a little bit too much love and not enough justice, not enough prudence and temperance and old-fashioned values. Mm. Speaking of Julius, did you ever read uh, Julius Excluded from Heaven? I did not. Do you know what it's about? I do not. Tell me. It's 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 from I think it's from a just after he died, and it was an anonymously put out pamphlet about what the afterlife would be like for Pope Julius, and uh, it posits that he will get turned away from the gates of heaven and then lay siege to it. <laughs> in, in character, as it were, very much in character. Yes. Yes. Yeah. <laughs> and then if he can't take it, he'll go make his own. <laughs> and it'll be beautifully designed in a kind of an Italian sort of high Baroque style. Still no Constantinople there. Yeah, Constantinople. Do you know what? We hear a lot about Constantinople. And I'm sure it was very lovely. But well, Julius definitely wanted Constantinople. Oh, he wanted it. Oh, the cities. I thought he meant architecturally. No, he did. He wanted it. When did he die? We have a date. Early 1600s. Yeah, so like Constantinople was conquered in 1453. Is that right? 1453, Constantinople falls to the Turks. There is a failure in the Western Church not long after the Council of Florence. The last emperor, and I would say that, I mean the last emperor of Constantinople, here's a fun fact for you, was actually uh, a Greek Catholic. Um, he was uh, uh, he recognised the su papal supremacy, which made him very unpopular for a long time. In some way, with with him at the time, certainly very unpopular with the the, the Orthodox, who would have made up the vast majority of his people. But because he got killed in the defence of Constantinople, he kind of got considered to be a martyr. So they don't they they kind of rehabilitated him. Uh, his one of his descendants became a very famous Italian comedian actor called Toto and was considered to be the by one of the Italian courts as the rightful heir to the Byzantine throne. God, nothing but fun facts today. Yeah, that's something you can put in a CV. Yeah. His name, honest to God, his, this guy's actual full name would stretch for around two, uh, two yards if written in, in pencil. It went on and on. Every, all these lord of this and king of that and baron of this and margrave of the other. Fantastic stuff. Anyway, that's the Pope. He has made this. Everybody's up very excited. Um, whether or not it, it presages any real doctrinal substantial change, I, I would very much doubt. I think it's a lot more of just Francis doing, we should all be nice to each other, love each other, we're all brothers and sisters, and which will annoy the Conservatives and disappoint the Liberals. But that, I think, is going to be the epitaph of this Pope. He, mm. he disappointed us all. Oh, we were speaking yesterday about the HSE, yeah. about contact tracing, and why that had 
Kalalips, yes. And uh, according to the HSE, it was because the number of calls rapidly went up and scheduling issues. They were not able to get enough staff to work the phones. Ah, well, you see, obviously. Considering that the HSE is an absolutely enormous employer. Yes. But Gary, you have to understand, I mean, you're looking at people who are able to answer telephones. I mean, they're not the kind of people you just find lying around the place unemployed. People who answer telephones take down names, dates, telephone numbers, that kind of stuff, you know. You're looking for somebody at least a graduate level. And there is there's one final thing I wanted to, to mention. I'm not sure if you've seen this, Michael. Yeah. But uh, we were talking about ISMI and the letter they'd sent out to their members saying that you need to look and see if you need to close now. Yes. If you need to do what is legally required. Well, they're back in the news today. But what it's about is um, they have a particular problem with what's happening there because they're looking at so almost all of their members are closed, particularly if you're selling toys, stuff like that, because they're non-essential goods. Yes. But some of the shops that are open are selling those things now. So they are essential services selling non-essential goods. Yes. And Ismi have come out and said that this is, uh, the phrase was red rag to a bull for the stores that have been forced to close. So you have all these small businesses who do toys, clothing, homeware, that kind of stuff. Yes. So they can't open, but they're seeing these large multinational stores or just large retail outlets that are now selling what they would normally sell. And uh, they are saying that Ismi's quote was that it's the small guys are getting shut down by government. And at the same time, government is allowing large billion euro businesses to continue trading. And I don't understand what the long term objective here is, unless they want Main Street Iron to have tumbleweeds blowing through it in the new year. Like, And this came from Aldi yesterday had a toy sale. So that kind of pissed them off. Yeah, it's, well, it's hard to know which way to go on this one because... Uh, yeah, as in, what do people want? There have a number of shops apparently have started selling masks and things like that. Masks, I don't know, hand sanitizers, things associated with this. And they're using this shops or businesses as a reason, as an excuse to say, okay, we do this. We are there for an essential thing. It's not actually our core business. We can stay open and people are giving out about this. Uh, and I thought, and it seems to me, I can't quite get the argument. We want more shops to close, so we have to crack down on this. Now, I don't know. Did you say that? Uh, so in um, in England uh, or the United Kingdom, rather, I should say, Wales has gone into lockdown, and the United Kingdom, and in their supermarkets have been told that they are only to sell essential items. So I don't know if that isn't perhaps what is me are looking for the government to do here. I would be... Oh, I, I, well, you see, Michael, here's... here's We were talking before about things that someone says and, you, you know, you don't want to kick them too hard because you assume that reporters have left something out of it. Yeah. But here's a, a quote from Leo. So Leo responded to this concern by saying that the government had gotten a commitment from the retail industry that it would not take advantage by selling products that are not part of their normal sales and that department stores would cordon off the areas where they sell clothes. What? 
So it, it looks like what's actually happening here is this stuff about essential stores isn't essential stores at all. It's essential goods. So if you're a shop that sells food and something else, you are actually only allowed to sell the food. But, oh, I mean, this is heavy. So this is Stephen Donnelly is saying, this. you know, it's not fair that this is happening. And he says, I want to clarify for the house that it is not so much that the stores are deemed essential, but that the relevant goods are deemed essential. A store cannot sell food in one part of the store and clothes in another part of the store. And then he gave an example of a sports outlet that had started selling masks and things like that so that it could open and then sell its you know, normal stuff. And he said that's not allowed. They would only be allowed to sell the PPE, but not the sports apparel. Uh, but presumably, these people will be allowed to sell their goods online. But not in store. But not in store. So I can go into... Oh, to hell with it. We're all very free and easy here. I can go to Tesco's, right? And I can go to Tesco's and I can buy my groceries in store in Tesco's. But if I want to buy any of the... If I, if I need socks, and if I don't have socks, I would say that socks are actually essential, and other things like socks, you have to have them. Then I have to go and buy them online from someone. Like, even though I'm in the shop, I can't buy them in the shop, no matter whether or not. I, you see, I think, I would have thought clothes were kind of fell into the category, you clothe the naked. But, you were wrong, Michael. But I, I, I'm obviously... Uh, this is just nonsense. I mean, I'm not... I'm not... I, I I, I I'm sympathetic, I suppose, to ISME, but uh, the small retailers, but they are going to be going online. I mean, this is the... Wait, but when you start to do this, if the government starts to do this, they're going to start to... It's going to be like a medieval... Bunch of medieval scholastic philosophers sitting around trying to decide on needles and angels and dancing on heads of pins and things. Because what's, oh, well, Nick, you can have that, but you can't have this. Are, what will, will there be a distinction between hardware? Will hardware, that's hardware, but no, that's not really hardware. So you can't, hardware shops can open, can't they? Michael, I don't even know anymore. I don't know. I thought I understood the essential stores, but now it's not essential stores. Now it's essential goods. And I I, I absolutely, by the way, take Ismi's point. You have stores that are open purely because they sell one product and are now being allowed to compete on another product while every other business in that area is closed. And that seems to me a, a regulatory issue. But I don't know what the solution to it is. But when you look at some like, stores like Dunn Stores, where their core business is domestic clothes and food, that's the shop. That's the Dunn Stores shop looks like. You Now you're going to have to cordon them off and say, oh, you can't buy that, but you can only buy food. But you're going to start getting into distinctions about... It's, it's, we're, we're back in this... We're going to be. It's like we're going to be back again discussing whether or not license off licenses can. Open. I mean, it's and I'm asking this not rhetorically, not to be like a smart ass question. On that basis, will drink be a non-essential? 
God knows. I earlier today, Michael, I bought you latter. Mm, nice. Uh, yes, at a half nine at night. Because it's actually the perfect time and temperature to have it because it doesn't melt. Mm-hmm. Where did you get that? Is there a, In Greystones. Do they have a gelato shop? Yes. An actual dedicated... Oh, lovely. Yes, they do. Yeah. Um, chatting to the owner briefly. But gelato is an essential good. Because it's food. Because food. Probably shouldn't be, though. You see, I can understand. I could, in theory, understand that if you're in Italy possibly southern Switzerland, maybe even Austria, that gelato would be considered to be um, an essential food. I like the fact that, for example, under the Italian tax code, I once asked an accountant, why doesn't wine attract this tax, which goes on, I think I was referring to champagne, perhaps, and he looked at me blankly and said, but why? Wine is food. Food does not attract that tax. sense sensible people proper intelligent sense of wine is food however i don't think wine is food here gelato definitely is food but is it essential food but then if you (laughs) so you say okay no gelato is not essential food but if you go to if i go but i will be able to buy hagen das or ben and jerry's if i not that i would ever buy ben and jerry's michael None of this makes sense. It is, it is a Kafka-esque bureaucratic nightmare. In makeup, all of these shops, these big pharmacies, pharmacies will, will you got, there, are, there are pharmacies out there where the majority of their business, the large majority of their business is the sale of cosmetics, uh, far, um, perfumery, Body lotions by Estee Lauder, is that essential? Or would they only? Are we going to cordon all of that off, and you can you can get aspirin in your your prescription, but nothing else? Oh, in the same way, do you know that the the five kilometer restriction now that you can go beyond if you have adequate reasons? Do you know one of the reasons is that you don't have anyone in your social bubble. Oh, so you could nominate someone from your social bubble who is outside your five limit. I could nominate someone in Cork to be in my social role. And it says that, you know, we would prefer that the person you choose be inside the five kilometer radius, but it's not necessary. Well, that's interesting because a friend, I was thinking that because I have a very good friend who has gone away for a sabbatical and he's living by himself at the moment in Ackle Island. And I was supposed to go over and we were going to work, do some work on some writing together. And and he's by himself, and I'm by my. I'm living by myself, so I could I could nominate him to be in my my bubble, and he could perfectly legally, be perfectly fine. So do you, does it have to be reciprocal? Do you do, do the both people involved have to sort of say he's my bubble, I'm his bubble? That that's how it works, is it? I have no idea. Then again, considering that the government when they launched the 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 policy and were giving the list of acceptable reasons to go outside five kilometers, uh. It had to be pointed out to them by one of the guys, I think from the Irish Examiner, that they had forgotten to put onto the list at getting food. Yes, yes, that was tricky. For Which, the- you know, I mean, if that had slipped by, 
I think the you know the choice of either breaking the lockdown or starving to death may have been a hard one for people. It was pointed out that perhaps they didn't realise that it, that there are cultures out there who don't actually live within five kilometres of a supermarket, and that maybe it would be a good idea to say that you know, actually if you're going for food, you you, you can you can do that. Should you need to? Should you need to? So, actually, of course, there's only one shop that I'm aware of in Ireland where I can get a certain kind of aged ricotta, which is on Ann Street in Dublin. I might get it in the English market in Cork. Can I go there to get that ricotta? I mean, it would appear so. Because there are certain pasta dishes I cannot have, Gary, unless I have that ricotta. Just can't... I just can't. I can't. I feel your pain, and I understand that you've made sacrifices, but that's not a sacrifice you're willing to make. Well, you know, it's not even a... It just, you just, it's unimaginable. You're not going to get, like, a low-fat cheddar over it. Oh! God! Oh. <laughs> Gary, the, the words low-fat by themselves. Low-fat cheese oh, is... Yeah, you know, uh, it's, it's an indignity all of its own. That's spitting in God's face. You're talking about demonic or di- diabolical things. No fat cheese. No, that's... Anyway, Ismi is, um, Ismi is warning that they could see a sort of campaign of uh, campaign of disobedience, I believe is the phrasing they used. Well, I have heard that this is actually happening, that there are people around the country running things like gymnasiums and, and non-essential shops and clothes shops and things who said, we're not closing. We're just not... We'll see now how effective this is. I think one or two people did that very publicly and then reversed course upon being visited by the guards. But I have also heard of it happening uh, quieter. And I have also seen this time a lot of places that were closed in the first lockdown and are now open on the basis of essential services or goods or things like that. And you're sort of looking at them and going, I mean... Maybe you could probably like a good legal team could probably make that argument. There seems a lot less sort of okay, then we just have to close this time and more. Well, now we're going to look for ways that we can open. I suppose the thing is, on one side of it, the, the retailers would say, and they're right, is that if you actually look at all of the studies that have been done at where infections take place. Retail outlets are way, 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 way down the list of places that are con- considered to be dangerous or opportunities for contagion. Auctioneers' offices, for example, I don't think have been the source of many clusters, nor have jewellers or watchmakers. So they'd say, well, you know, the fact is that we don't represent a, we don't represent a danger. And it, you might reasonably argue that, in fact, as opposed to one of the multinationals that maybe has a smaller shops with narrow aisles and say on a Saturday or Sunday can be very busy, even though they limit the number of people going in and going out these days, that that is more likely to be a risk to the public health. I don't, the response to that, I don't know. I, maybe Neffet or governments would say it's not as much about the location, but rather just simply limiting the amount of movement within the country. 
that if you have all these shops open, you're still going to have people moving. There's still going to be commerce and traffic going around. And that by its, that in and of itself represents a, an opportunity for the infection to keep going, particularly at a time when the infection doesn't seems to be beyond control. And therefore, we just have to clamp down on all movement. And one of the best ways to restrict movement is simply to stop having people have a reason to go from A to B. It just isn't a reason. You just there's only a, you have a very limited number of reasons or choices to go out or to do anything, so you just don't do it. And maybe there's reason. Maybe that's reasonable as well. I don't know. It falls into that very very large category of things, Gary, that I don't know. But I suspect it also is just things that just don't make don't make a whole lot of sense. Uh, maybe by the time it's over, we'll. Did you see, by the way, that there's already a couple of doctors uh, advocating that we, we should we should be forgetting about this six weeks nonsense, and we should be right now committing to twelve weeks. And if we really commit ourselves to twelve weeks, and we all behave ourselves, we can achieve zero COVID. Yes, yes. Let us all achieve zero COVID. It's a bit like Nirvana, isn't it? If we all if we all stay at home and we meditate hard enough, maybe the whole country can will be able to achieve enlightenment. I achieved enlightenment many years ago, and did you? I mean, it's it's fairly tedious to be honest. Okay, well, there's all this living for stuff, but you're not really concerned by it. Does that mean you're a what's the phrase a Buddha Vista now? You're a a Buddha, an avatar of the Buddha. Well, I don't want to toot my own horn, Michael. Uh, well, I'm sure you leave that to other people. I do have a girlfriend. <laughs> anyway, moving on. <laughs> I hope she doesn't need this. <laughs> anyway. Anyway. That went from enlightenment. That went sideways. <laughs> anyway, moving. I tell you, there was a, there was a, there was a, there was a, a, a very sad t tweet I came across today, Gary, which I just wanted to mention because it, it was very, very sad, which was uh, Ono Brin was very sad and very disappointed because... Did he, uh, did he fail in his quest to make sure that people are homeless? <laughs> he did about he did he did Ono Brin has as you know has written the book on homelessness or is it homefulness he's written a book anyway and it's all about homes and the lack of them or something like that I, I can't speak ill of the book because I read the blurb and then I picked a couple of random pages to read and then I just put it down so Sinn Féin, in their wisdom in, in the middle of the pandemic and the housing crisis, although the, the pandemic, you never know, may play a role in at least alleviating in part the housing crisis. We may see people flocking to culture land and continuing to work from home uh, after the the virus has either departed or else it's just become part of our lives because apparently the vaccine is not going to make any difference at all. Lots of stories about saying, oh, even if you get a vaccine, don't think it's all over. God, you don't, lads, even if it's true that technically that if there's one vaccine and it only, has, it only does this and it's only limited, can, you, can we talk about that when we have a vaccine? For, for the time being, can we not just let the people think, you know, one of these days there will be a vaccine or maybe even 12 or 15 vaccines and gradually we will actually be able to get out of this nightmare. Just for the time being, just let us live with that vague little bit of hope. 
rather than jumping up and down on it and hitting it with hammers. The vague notion that there might actually be an end to this. Anyway, sorry, a little editorial there. Uh, they had decided to propose a ban on co-living, Gary. Now, I don't quite, I, I, I genuinely, I can't get my head around this. There isn't anybody out there who, who is saying that from now on, all the planning authorities around the country are only going to give planning permission to builders who come in or developers who come in and say, we're going to do co-living. That's it, only co-living. And if you don't like it, well then, feck you. And there's no more houses and no more apartments and no more families and no more studio beds, apartments and all. No, only, it's just one fairly small segment of the market, I'd say very small segment of the market, because it's aimed at, I would say, people in their early, mid-twenties, Gary, would you? In, 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 urban, in urban areas, principally, I would say Dublin, maybe a bit in Cork. I mean, it's a, it's a niche. Yeah, it seems designed for urban professionals working primarily in the kind of tech and financial sector who have relatively large amounts of disposable income but spend very little of their time actually at home. And if they are at home, I mean, there are, they, they, there are things that they don't do, for example, cook. Now, this has been something which has been part of life, for example, in New York for more than 50 years, where you've had apartments where people, there's effectively no kitchen or a very small kitchen, and you have community facilities for laundries in the basement, you have laundry. We've all seen the sitcoms where people have to go down to the basement to do their to do their washing. Uh, for some reason, Sinn Féin have taken a set against this. And Ono Brin says, a bad night for renters. The government has badly left them down. More gentrified tenement planning applications will follow. I, honest to God, I can't work this out. I can't unpick this. I'm trying to see the side of the argument, and I it it is it eludes me, Gary. Help, help me. Steal, steal, man, the argument for me. We had we had Michael Martin come out and say that there is a risk that these become modern tenement buildings, and you just sort of go, they're very expensive for tenements. Yeah, I mean tenement buildings were were cheap, whereas and you you stacked per people in them, which per people can't afford these apartments, so. I'm not sure what he thinks will happen there. The whole point of the tenement was you took a house, which was originally a very fine Georgian villa in town, and into each room you stuck a family or two families. So you'd have 20 people living in a room, and they all shared one bathroom, bathroom, one closet out in the yard, and maybe there was one place where they could boil a pot or something. That is not what we're talking about here. Poor people will not be in these buildings. And you know what? Rich people have to live somewhere as well. Well, I mean, if we're wrong about that, and if the developers are wrong about that, and these are effectively seen as tenement-like structures that you have to pay two times the going rate for, well, then I suppose, Michael, considering the rental market seems to have totally collapsed in the city from what I've seen, um, people won't live in them, and the developers will go bankrupt. Yeah. If people build these things and nobody wants to live in these things, then they will stop building them. That's what happened. You know, it happened with the Ford Edsel. It's happened many times. Clive Sinclair built an electric car. It was enormously exciting at the time. Then nobody bought it. Do you know what Clive Sinclair did? He stopped building electric cars. I'm 
that's a very very ancient example but that's you don't need to have a piece of legislation and if people want to live in these things well why shouldn't they what is so morally reprehensible about us i i am baffled but i don't see that this how it helps anybody this, this line on gentrification whatever if you gentrification let's assume that is entirely a negative thing because that appears to be what ono brain thinks these tend to be quite tall structures and they're quite small apartments yeah which would indicate that they have a fairly high level of density yes which would indicate that if anything they would concentrate gentrification in a small number of areas thereby limiting gentrification to other areas because so many people can fit in them. But what's wrong with gentrification anyway? Well, I don't know, but I'm just assuming he's right. Even if he's right that gentrification is a bad thing, these hotels don't seem to increase the risk of of uh, gentrification. And anyway, this is all a meaningless conversation because we know that regardless of what happens, any Irish politician will talk at length about homelessness and how terrible housing markets are and things like that, and they'll put in place their lovely policies... And then the very first time someone tries to build something in their constituency, the TDs and senators will put in a note of concern, which means they don't actually complain about it. They just note some things they have issues with and you know, they want future work on it. And then the party's councillors will use that note of concern to develop actual objections and rip the development to fucking shreds and, so that nothing ever gets built. And if that fails, of course, they can always get onto Antashka. To have a secret meeting with the planners where nobody else gets in to have expressed their concerns and they then you go back and say sorry you've been refused why have you been refused well we can't really tell you that you haven't won the game of planning because the game of planning is you're given an envelope and you have to guess what the planners objections could possibly be to you building there and if you get if you get all the answers right, well, then you win the prize of planning permission. But sometimes if you don't get them all, well, you have to shake hands and say, well, thanks for playing. You know, obviously you have to pay your architects and your engineers. And you have to pay the guy you bought the land from and all that. But, you know, come back and play another time. In the in, in, But in the meantime, all those are the people who actually would like to live in houses or apartments. Well, it's rather tough on them as well. So, But, you know, we have to play the game. It's very important that we play the game. Yeah, I prefer the American system where uh, basically if a neighbour, if you want to build something and a neighbour doesn't like it, they can just go fuck themselves. Well, it's not, well it depends on where you are in America as well. I think there are local planning ordinances and strangely, those ordinances become thicker and thicker and more dense the more left-wing or progressive the city you're living in is. No, but I think we can uh, call it there and we will be back on Sunday wherein, hopefully, uh, something will have burned down. Well, that's a cheerful thought, and we will maybe be able to have even more intelligent conversation about what ha happened in the debate tonight. The news is always a great thing to be doing, because if something terrible happens, you get to talk about it, in which case you've got stuff to do for your job. And if nothing happens, well, then presumably the world is good. Yeah. Presumably. So, I mean, you know, I back both sides, so either way I'm a winner. It's a win-win. But anyway, on that note, we'll say, mind yourselves and don't go out doing non-essential things. Just stay home and knit. I'm not, I'm not sure what, what non-essential things are anymore. Gaining enlightenment, that kind of thing. 
Never essential, oftentimes not even recommended. Solid three and a half star review. Solid. Bye bye. All the best.